Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. The prodigal. Probably probably one of the most popular uh, parables or, or group of scriptures in the Bible. Everybody knows it. Um, and so uh, my portion of this is... Uh, is from the perspective or the portion that deals with the actually wandering son who, you know, is, runs away. So um, we'll start out real, real quick just with uh, Luke 15, 11, and 12. Um, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, um, I have two children, and if one of my children were to come to me and say that, uh, it would be very difficult. Um, it's probably one of the closest relationships you can have in your life. Uh, maybe second to marriage is the one that you have with your children. And, uh, and what the young man was asking for was, was, equivalent to, um, was equivalent to basically saying, I wish you were dead. And I think for him to get to that point, for that young man to get to that point where he decided that it was better for his dad to be dead, it was better for that relationship to be severed and ended, and for his pockets to have gold in them, or whatever it was, um, is a sad statement. It's a sad place to be. Um, that young man had, had betrayed that relationship. Um, and so, of course, whenever uh, I'm going through Scripture or I'm reading things like this, I think in my time and in my life, have I done something similar? Have I ever betrayed someone? Have I hurt uh, someone who, who loves me unconditionally? And I did remember a time when I had done that. And uh, so, long time ago, really long time ago, because I'm older now, but when I was 16, um, I lived with my father. My parents had been separated for about eight years, and my dad was uh, pretty much my guardian. But he, he worked uh, a ton of hours. I mean, 12, 16-hour days weren't, weren't uncommon for him. And so we never really saw each other. I didn't have much of a, a structured lifestyle. I didn't have a curfew. I didn't have boundaries. I could, I could stay out all night if I wanted. My, my dad didn't care. He didn't even probably know. Um, so there was a time. So I was out with uh, some friends, and I would stay over at this one's friend's house pretty regularly, two or three days at a time. And we were driving. Uh, it was a Friday night, weekend night, and we were driving around because in the 80s, that's what you did in Anchorage. You didn't have anywhere else to go. You just drive around until the vehicle ran out of gas, and you'd scrounge together some more money and try to try to keep going. So that's what we were doing. And we came across, uh, driving down Northern Lights, we came across my dad, and he was sitting on the curb. And uh, he'd been riding his motorcycle and had wrecked it. And he uh, was just sitting there. And in my youth, in my exuberance, 
I was like, hey, let's pull over. Let's see what's going on with my dad. Why is he sitting on the side of the road? And we did. And he was, uh, I, I asked him, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, what happened? He was, well, I wrecked. I said, well, do you need anything? And he goes, yeah, help me get it up. Because the bike was heavy. And then he couldn't pick it up alone. He couldn't. So we picked it up. And I said, are you good to go? And he goes, yep, I'm good. And uh, I left. Got in the truck. Didn't think about it again for a really long time, actually. Um, well, what I had found out later was that, because I didn't go home for the next couple of days, I found out my sister finally got a hold of me at this friend's house and found out that my dad had had a stroke that night and wrecked the motorcycle three or four more times because he did, couldn't control it. And when he had gotten home, he just sat in a chair for three days, waiting for someone to notice. And uh, I didn't even notice. I'd actually been home one day, gotten dressed, took a shower, saw my dad sit in the chair, kept going. And I thought, is that what it was like for this young man who was wishing his father was dead? Granted, I didn't wish my dad was dead, but at the same time, I was so consumed with my life I didn't even notice my dad's was falling apart. So it's easy to get to that point. I mean, I understand a lot of this young man's betrayal of his father. Mine was similar, but not as, uh, as open, I guess. And so we go to Luke 15, 12, 13. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So when I'm reading through this, I kept thinking, why did the dad do it? Why agree? Why not just say no? Sorry, I'm not giving you this property, this gold, this wealth. And uh, that led me to another scripture um, in Numbers eleven eighteen through 15, where the children of Israel are complaining, which I know it's a shock. They complained a lot, but at the same time, they're like, why don't we have meat? <laughs> and say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it, is, it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils <laughs> and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and who have wept for him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? And I thought, well, there's the answer. Sometimes God's, God allows us to have that thing that we think we need so desperately, so badly, that we're willing to betray a close relationship, that we're willing to hurt someone who we love. And God's like, you want that thing? You want it so bad? Take it. Here it is. Have it until you're sick of it. Have it until it's coming out of your nostrils, which is so graphic um, and yet, it's, uh, it's real. And, uh, and then I thought, 
Well, why is the son wanting to do all this? Why is the son so eager to get on with his life alone in a far country with money? What's driving it? Can't he see what he's doing is wrong? And Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. He's blinded by his sin to the point to where he can't even see that he's running headlong in the wrong direction as fast as he can. And so, of course, this, this path isn't going to end well, right? I mean, we all know the scripture. We all know where it ends up. But the reality for him uh, is growing. And we come at the, to the point of that place on the road when we're loathsome, when we're sick of whatever it is that we thought we had to have. Everything starts to change, which is Luke fifteen fourteen through 16. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And there it is, right? So at the end of the run, I'm running from God, I'm running from my family, I'm running from my father, I'm running from everything that I know is right because I think it's good, but I'm, I'm still going in the wrong direction. There comes to the point where he has need. And that need is usually, usually brought on by the circumstances in our life that God has allowed there, those things that we choose over him. And that led to another scripture that, that I thought fit this very well, which is Hosea. Hosea five fourteen through 15. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion of Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. And then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt, and they will seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. So even though this young man was running after everything he thought was great and wonderful and amazing, at the end, he's been torn. And in his guilt, he starts to try to figure out, what can I do? How can I get back? How did I get here? Everything was so good just not so long ago. And now, it's bad, and he's desperate. Which is a lot of the times the places where we end up is when we call out to God. 15, 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When he came to himself, what does that actually mean? Wasn't he already there? Isn't he already with himself? But it it actually uh, alludes to the fact that he was beside himself. He wasn't in his right mind not clearly thinking. But when he did finally get the picture, the clarity of, wow, (laughs) I'm in trouble. I'm alone. 
I'm in a foreign land. I have nothing. And I'm wishing that I could eat some of these pods that I can't even eat. They're not even, I couldn't live on them. They couldn't, they could hurt me. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to go. I might have some hope with my father. Maybe I can go back and maybe I could just be a servant. Maybe it hasn't been so long. Maybe it's not so far. And so he does have hope, though. And he has enough hope to get to the point to where he's willing to risk it. And what's interesting is that he actually references that he sinned against heaven and before you. He's planning what he's going to say to his father. He's planning his his begging, his rationalization as to how can I come home. And so, he does. He heads home. And that is the end of the uh, appetizer portion of this, uh, of this sermon. That was good the second time. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. It's really a privilege to be sandwiched between these guys uh, today. Um, I'm just going to do one verse. We're going to talk about one verse, the next one in the sequence here. Uh, and that's the, where grace is applied to this, this young man. It's an it's ex- extraordinary story, an extraordinary uh, just glimpse into what grace is like uh, through the Father here. So let's see here. I'm going to get uh, the 20th verse here, chapter 15 of Luke. I'll just read it. And maybe, yeah, there it is. And he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now the father did did four things here. We're going to kind of look at each one of those four and then kind of see how remarkable this is. The first thing is, the father saw him when he was a long way away. Now, I'm going to infer a couple of things here, which uh, I think are true, but, you know, not sure. But I think the father had hope. He had hope that his son would return. He lost his boy. boy was gone. I think every day he probably took a few looks down the road, just hoping to see his lad coming back. And day after day after day, it didn't happen. Then this day... There he is. That's my boy. He's coming back. So I kind of think that's kind of the heart of the father. I think when we read the rest of that verse, you'll see that it kind of rings true to the rest of it. The second thing he did, he said he felt compassion for him. Now, he had the right to feel a few other things other than compassion. I think Paul covered that in, the, in his part pretty well. Um, could have given the hope you learned your lesson, boy, speech, right? Things are going to be different around here now. And a few other things like that. Could have been, he was very justified to lay down the law, so to speak, to this young man who had been so foolish. But he didn't. He had compassion for him. The third thing, and this is really atypical, even in today's society, usually the people in charge, the, the ones that are, are running the roost, you know, the, the top, top person doesn't run to a subordinate. You don't go out after them. You wait for them to come to you. 
They approach you, they come with proper respect and deference, make their request, et cetera, so forth, plead their case, whatever the case would be. That hasn't changed over history. And uh, it's probably more that way back in this culture than it is in ours. But this dad, he ran out to greet the kid. Very undignified, uh, probably would have been seen in that culture as a, as a dysfunctional family for sure, having a father act like that. No wonder the kid ran away. You know, you can, you can kind of hear him talking about it. Um, he ran to the boy. And then the fourth thing, the father embraced and kissed him. Again, a way over-the-top show of affection, and it was the wrong direction. should have been from the kid to the father, but it wasn't. And the dad didn't have any indication yet from this son, other than that he was coming back, of what his intentions were. Because the next verse, the boy says, hey, I've sinned, and et cetera, and, and showed a, a contrite heart. But it didn't happen until after the father did those four things. So he really didn't have, I don't think, um, a knowing knowledge that uh, this boy really was repentant. Uh, and that's one of the key points, I think, in grace. Grace takes a chance. Grace is risky. You give up control when you give grace. I lay down the law and I have rules and things, and there's nothing wrong with those. Those, are, those have their place. But grace can only do what grace does. It changes the human heart. The rules and stuff doesn't change. It kind of leads you up to the, the change, but it doesn't really acqu- uh, achieve the change. And that's, that's shown here, I think. Um, he took a chance. He didn't really, I don't think, uh, know that whether or not that grace would be abused or not. I uh, didn't know whether the kid was coming back saying, well, I'm going to recharge your batteries, get a few loans from my buddies, uh, get things up again, and out I go. He didn't know that. Um, it really wasn't until later that the boy uh, said he was repentant. So, and also, uh, the other point here about grace is it was totally undeserved. The boy did not deserve that kind of greeting. He didn't earn it. He knew he didn't earn it. Uh, and yet, it was given without any, any part of the boy that deserved that. I want to kind of go to a, a contemporary story of a, a prodigal son type of story. This is from a, a pastor in a large lower 48 church about two years ago. Uh, he had a, his oldest boy, Gabe, is a senior in high school. Um, I heard this uh, a couple months ago when I was at a conference, and it, it really did touch me. I mean, it's an amazing story uh, of grace here. Um, boy was a senior in high school. He was acting out and not in small ways. He didn't give any details as to exactly what this young man was doing, but you don't have to have a very big imagination to figure it out. Uh, he was doing every, everything he could uh, in a big, big-time way to rebel and do his own thing, and they, they could not control this young man. Uh, they really laid the law down. Uh, he was under severe restriction, took his car privileges away, just about everything you can think of they could do uh, under the law. They did, uh, and of course, the, the real big thing they did I don't understand this myself. You take my phone away, you're not going to really destroy my life, okay? I I can get along without a phone. But I guess teenagers are different. You take their phone away, you might as well string them up and kill them. I mean, this kid was, you know, it was the last, it was was a big drama anyway. The way the father explained it, it was kind of comical to hear it, but uh, there really was a, it was a big deal to this boy. Um, And after about a month, he said, begrudged compliance. The kid was just kind of, getting along there, just waiting, you know, just waiting until his sentence was over. He could be 18, graduate from high school, and get out from under his parents' uh, roof and, and, and be free to, to be a prodigal, basically. Uh, that's basically the situation. They, they didn't know what to do uh, about this young man. 
this guy's a pretty well-known speaker, and, and he had to go to a conference, and he just dreaded going to these things because Gabe would act out. The mother would be there, and she'd go nuts and uh, text him and call him saying, hey, you know, all this stuff's happening. He'd come home, uh, call him up, make it better. And he says, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm not God, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, he was going away for 48 hours, so he got the boy. He says, hey, look, Gabe, just for 48 hours, can you just for 48 hours obey your mother? Just 48 hours. And I'll tell you what, if you can do it for 48 hours, I'll come back and we'll get your phone back. Pretty big carrot for this young kid. He took off that evening. It hasn't been gone very long at all. The mother calls, said, Gabe is acting out. He's out of control. I don't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. And he, the, the father just went ballistic. He just, he just didn't know what to do here. And he completed his, his uh, time at, at the event, gave his uh, talks, and on his way back, he's just wrestling with God. Just pray, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do with this kid. Uh, help me. You know, he was just at the end of, his, end of himself about uh, what to do uh, as, a, as a father of this boy. And this little voice of God speaking inside him, of course, he didn't think it was God at the time. He says, give him his phone back. He says, nah, no way. I'm not going to give his phone back. It can't be you, Lord. <laughs> it can't got to be somebody else speaking to me here. And he kept hearing that voice. And he got home, uh, still wrestling over, over what he thought he was hearing from God, but not agreeing with it and certainly not very willing to do it. Um, set, set Gabe down and said, hey, um, let's talk. And they had about a 10-minute conversation. He could just tell Gabe is listening. That he's, he's never listened before like this. He noticed that. And then after the 10 minutes, uh, he finally begrudgingly, the father gave in to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and said, okay, Gabe, let's uh, get your shoes on. Let's go to the phone store. And uh, Gabe's lip started to quiver and his eyes teared up and he said, Dad, Dad, I, I don't deserve a phone. And he just broke down right there. Um, I don't deserve a phone. And the father says, I know you don't deserve it. Go get your shoes on. Let's go get your phone. And more happened there, but he, he set him down a little bit. And he said, before he went, to son, um, God takes me to the phone store. And he exaggerated a bit. I'm sure he said 10,000 times a day. I, some people do that. I do that. So I probably would have said the same thing. Um, 10,000 times a day, God takes me to the phone store. And I don't deserve it. Never. I thought that was pretty cool because that's what he does to us. <laughs> um, God knew it was Gabe's time for grace to be applied. And I think grace, there's a timing for it. There's a time for law and the rules to bring a person to the point of need, and there's a time for grace to be applied. And I think we need to really be walking with the Spirit of the Lord to know when that time is. It's not an easy thing, uh, but it, it's how God leads us. So uh, I think we can abuse grace just like we can abuse the law. Uh, they both have their purpose. They both have their place. Um, both these young men in these stories uh, received grace. They both didn't deserve it. They both knew they didn't deserve it. And both the fathers applied it appropriately at the right time. And God, I don't think, expects us to fully understand it. In fact, I, I think he knows we'll never understand it all the way. But he also knows that he wants us to receive it and experience it even though we can't fully understand it. All right, Ephesians uh, 3.19. There we go. That's one of my three conclusions to this part of it is um, 
knowing what we really can't know. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's the part we want to concentrate on there. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How can I know something which I can't know? Well, we just talked about it. We experience it. God lets us experience his love, lets us experience his presence, his peace, all these attributes of his. We get to experience. None of us can really fully understand how all that works. Um, It's just incredible about how God allows that to happen. Um, Just like and the offertory uh, thought there about the lady washing Jesus' feet. She didn't understand all that was going on, but what she did understand, she responded to. <laughs> she knew she was loved. Uh, God just kind of puts his hand on my shoulder every so often, and not very often, but often enough, and just says, Bob, I love you. And, man, when that happens, that's powerful. That's just, and it happens at times when, yeah, the world would say, boy, he's going through a rough time. How come he's just... Seems so joyful. Well, God just told me he loved me. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, that blows me away. And those are times that I still remember, the two or three times that was really poignant in my life, that uh, I go back to those, and it's kind of like an anchor, kind of, wow. Uh, it gets me through the tough times, and also I think it gets us looking ahead to the times that are coming. It's a glimpse of heaven when that happens. Grace, point two, it's not just for salvation, it's also for our growth. God reapplies grace to me almost continuously in situations like just like the Father. He said it really well. God takes me to the phone store all the time and I don't deserve it. I think that's how he grows us, through the application of grace at the proper time to draw us and make us more like his son Jesus. And, of course, the third part of this is kind of the obvious one to me anyway, is that you know we're the hands and feet of God. You know, stuff gets done in the world. He wants us to do it. We're God's grace agents. He wants us to be agents of grace, among many other things. But that's probably one of the most important ones. Is, and it's kind of one of the most joyful ones, too, is to do that in a proper way and get the results of, of grace being applied to actually transform and change someone's life. So I just challenge you guys to think about how you can be ministers of grace, how you can apply grace in different situations, because my natural tendency is to lay a law down, okay? And I really don't think about the grace part much. But I think a transformed mind thinks grace. So that's part of the transformation in Romans 12 that God calls us to, is to be thinking like he thinks. And he thinks grace, I'm sure of it. And that's the last verse I have up here out of Matthew 12, 7. Uh, Jesus was kind of reprimanding some Pharisees uh, for being a little judgmental. They had a tendency to be that way. So do we. But if you had known what it means, what it means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. He desires compassion and not a sacrifice. He desires grace. That's what the gospel is. Thank you. That's my part, and John is going to wrap it up here. Thank you, Bob and Paul. What a blessing to be a part of a group of elders that will take an opportunity like this to work together to deliver a powerful message of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And my goodness, we've all been there. We all need it. What are the evidence of the prodigal's desperate need of mercy and forgiveness? 
They've already been uh, well outlined, but I'll quickly go through four of them. In verse 12, the son says, give me my share. Isn't that right out of the world script? I deserve it. I want it. You've got it. It should be mine. Verse 13, he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. In preparing for this, I looked up the word squandered. I wanted to see just what that means. It means to chew it up, grind it up into powder, and then to throw it out indiscriminately. It's pretty interesting. In wild living. Verse 14, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. I think the story took place over quite a bit of time, maybe three or four years. I doubt that he went up to his dad one afternoon and, and asked him for his half of the inheritance, and by the next day he had it and he left town. I think that took a period of time. There's also quite a trip involved. And then, let's say he had a half a, uh, half a million bucks or so, and uh, he didn't spend that in a week, unless, of course, there was gambling. There may have been. We don't know for sure. But after a while, and it kind of snuck up on him quietly, subtly, he began to realize, I think I'm in trouble. My money's running out. In fact, it's almost gone. In fact, I'm feeling a little hungry here. And we all know what had happened. There was a famine in the land. A famine just doesn't happen overnight. It sneaks up on us when we have plenty to eat and then a little less and Finally, we're feeling hungry, and we look around, and we say, Oh, my goodness, there's nothing to eat here. So he did what uh, we would normally do, usually. Go down to the... No, no, we don't go to the aid office. We go get a job. And I doubt that he made much uh, doing what he took on, taking care of the pigs. But he did make a little money. But there's a problem with his little bit of money. What is it? There's no food to buy. Didn't matter if he had money or not. And after time, he looked at the pods that the pigs were eating and said, Oh, if I could just eat those. And then eventually, he got a clue and he realized home was where it was at. And then finally in verse 24, the father says, he faces reality. This son of mine was dead. When we take off and go to faraway places or nearer at home places where we think no one can see us, and we focus on licentious living, squandering our resources, we're as good as dead, physically, spiritually, and in every way. How is it that we get to this point of such desperation? Well, I think there's a a pretty easy answer to that, and we all engage in this, and that is we tend to become or we tend to move towards 
that which we gaze upon. There could be something that I'm not very interested in, and it catches my eye, and then after a while I look a little closer, and I look a little closer, and it begins to draw me in. It captivates me. I have a personal experience in that. I uh, tend to walk in the mall in the wintertime, so I go to uh, the Diamond Mall three to five days a week for about an hour, and I walk. Now, there are a lot of things in the mall I do not want to feast my eyes on. And so I alter my route when I go by some things that I, I know I can't go there. I just look straight ahead. <clears throat> but there are some decent things to look at. I love photography, good Alaskan photography. And every November, a photographer named uh, Todd Salat, who uh, focuses on the Aurora Borealis, maybe you've seen some of his work, in some tremendous places in Alaska. He and his wife move all their wares in and they set up a shop. And it catches my eye. There's no sin in looking at his photography. It's landscape, basically. But then I look closer and I realize there's a panoramic view of Mount McKinley, or Denali as we know it. So it happens that I've been within a hair of the top of that mountain on two different occasions. And so I have an excuse for wanting that photograph, that beautiful photograph of what's maybe my favorite mountain in the world. So I look at it. Now, it's been ten and a half months since I've seen this picture, and I've gotten along with it fine all summer. No need. But I go walking, I'm walking, and I come back by, and it's still there. And I look a little more. And next week I stop and I look a little more. And after a month of looking, I'm thinking, where could I find $500? I think I need it. Okay, so you get the picture. You understand how it happens. That which we gaze upon, it draws us in and... We move towards it. That happens with food. Anybody here like food shows or like to cook? Okay, we won't go any further there. You know the temptation. We look at it, we learn to make it, and we want it, and we eat it. Clothing does the same. You know, in Alaska, we can get along well in just about everything with a T-shirt and a pair of jeans until we start to look in the windows or somewhere else and... We find something a little nicer and think, you know, I would look good in that. Then there's those high-powered backcountry vehicles. That's me. I'm a sucker for them. I happen to have a small lease on a, in a cabin that's way off the beaten track, and I could use one of those big grinding machines. And then there's the neighbor's house. This past summer... The neighbor on one side built an entirely new house, and the neighbor on the other side totally rebuilt his house. I live in a decent house, you know, nothing fancy, but I'm a renter. I could own. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I hate to say this, men, but 
you might agree with me, there's also the neighbor's wife. And she's so easy to look at. Ooh, stop right now. There's those exotic trips to wonderful places in the world. Nothing wrong with any of them, but we're drawn to them. Bodies, human bodies, seductively dressed bodies. And we know how they get our attention. The older brother gives us a clue about his younger brother's seduction. He's talking to his dad towards the end, and his dad says, Please come in. You're lost. Dead brother is, is back. And he looks his dad straight in the eye, and he's dead on honest. And he says, Dad, he squandered your wealth on prostitutes. I don't know what the form of pornography was at that time. But it's obvious he spent some time gazing upon it. But he also took a lot of the wealth of his family. He went to a faraway place and squandered it all, totally wasted it, and wasted himself to the point of desperation and starvation because there was a famine in the land. He got a job caring for pigs herding and feeding them. But there was nothing to buy and nothing to eat. So he was starving physically, spiritually, and socially. That's what happens when we look longingly at what we should not have or where we should not go. When we take our value to a far-off country to do that which is evil and sinful. Nothing good ever comes from it. And the father says, Son, it results in death. But there is good news. There is a lot of good news. The reality is we do not have to plan for failure. I'm afraid that sometimes we take the story like the prodigal son and say, well, here goes. How many times do we hear a dad or or a, a mom and a dad say, well, we train our kids, we teach them to be independent, to go out in the world and make their way. Well, there's parts of that that are good. But there are parts of that that expose us to all kinds of things that we should not be exposed to. God's plan is to have mercy on us, to forgive us when we drift to dark places in sin. That plan is actually God's plan B. Now, before you rush to saying, John, that's heresy, hear me out. When God has a plan B, he also has a plan A. And when God has a plan, it's perfect. 
His plan B is perfect and his plan A is perfect. But it is still his plan B. Okay, God's plan A. And it behooves us to take a look. It behooves us to look at his plan A, to gaze on his plan A, and long for God's first choice for us. God's plan A is one word, holiness. Leviticus 11.44 is a very short verse, but it's simple and to the point. It is God speaking, and this is what he wants of us. Be holy even as I am holy. Wow. God is telling us that he wants us to be like him. This summer I ran across a a good book written by a Jewish pastor, and he explained what he feels like we have lost, and that is a sense of holiness. He said it should be defined this way. To be holy is to realize that we are special. We are special. It's not chest puffed up, I'm hotsy-totsy, I'm better than the next guy, I'm holier than thou. And that's the enemy that the, mess- the, the message the enemy has put in our heads. It's very simple. God made us. And he made us special. Now we are to live as special people. Here's a great question. How is it that we could live in such a way that we would avoid the far-off country, avoid the pigsty? It's a simple section in... At the end of Jesus' life, at the end of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, known as the Great Commission. Go into all the world, baptize, teach them, my disciples, to obey everything I have commanded you. Do we really want to avoid the darkness of faraway places? Is it possible to avoid the dark places of the world? To answer that, we first should go to Scripture, and there are a large number of examples. And I won't go into these in any depth at all, but let me just remind you of a few people who set about to be holy right from the beginning and were till the day that that God took them. Mary, the mother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Samuel, Anna, the temple prophetess, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who went into the fiery furnace because they would not compromise. Joseph, who went to the dungeon because he would not compromise. And Daniel, put in the lion's den. Closer to home, we have many examples. I'd love to spend some time on them. Oswald Chambers, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
Joshua Harris, who wrote, I kissed dating goodbye. I think it was his brothers who also wrote, do hard things. And they were young fellows, barely out of high school, if they were even that. And then they went on the road speaking about that. There's Rebecca St. James, a contemporary advocate for purity and waiting on God. John Piper and Amy Carmichael, who gave 50 years of her life in missions in India to rescue and disciple temple prostitutes, young girls who were there to make money for the priests. She did this at great danger to herself, 50 years without a furlough. And you can chuckle at this one. There's Tim Tebow. We've all chuckled at him. You know, the world is laughing at him. Go into a kneeling position and praying. Laughable, isn't it? Last night, what was the uh, award that was given in pro football last night? The Heisman Trophy. Tim Tebow won the Heisman, I don't know, six, eight years ago, maybe twice. I don't remember exactly, but I heard a figure last night on the radio that Tim was one of 18 quarterbacks out of the last 24 football players who awarded this trophy. 18 of them were quarterbacks. He is the only quarterback who won the Heisman Trophy who won one game, one playoff game in the NFL. None of the others had done that. I'm personally convinced that the media rode Tim Tebow right out of the NFL. They could not handle his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Got a couple personal examples. For a long time, uh, our family lived in northeastern Minnesota, went to a little church, and for 10 years we had a woman friend who had a daughter who was wayward, who was on drugs, serious heavy drugs, and then got into prostitution and dancing in clubs, every kind of licentious living you can imagine. And she just simply would, and I can tell you her name, she would give you her testimony today if she were here. Her mom would come and say, you need to pray for Joey. I got a call from the hospital again last night, and she was out. They didn't know if they could save her. Joey probably survived eight or ten of those trips to the hospital. And at about 25 years of age, she was up visiting her mom and had nothing going in her life. And her mom asked me, John, is there any chance you could give her a job for a short time? Here's this little peanut of a woman, thin. I don't know that she could lift 20 pounds. Had not lived a life where she had any health. And what's my business? I'm a stonemason. I'm building fireplaces. Well, I discovered that Joey was artistic. (laughs) 
the uh, the part that makes stone masonry beautiful are the joints around the rocks. Joey could do those exquisitely. So I taught her how to do that, and for three or four months she worked with me. I have to admit, I heard some horrible, ugly stories from her of her life, where she had been, what she'd experienced. There were some days I just had to say, Joey, I can't take any more today. What she was doing is she was simply needing to know that there was at least one man out there that wouldn't take advantage of her, that would see that she had value. And so we worked together, and then she moved on from there. I have to tell you before I forget, Joey came out of it by the grace of God. And today, she works for Teen Challenge as a drug counselor, has a a beautiful son, and a godly life. There are others. We all know them. Men who, for some reason, don't feel like they have respect and they wander away and indulge with people they shouldn't and leave their families behind. There are women whose husbands have abandoned them and they find themselves out looking for fulfillment in ways that they really shouldn't. This is not God's plan, but he has certainly made it possible to bring us all back to him. Just want to Again, give a a physical word picture of holiness, of being special. I've noticed around here so many beautiful young little babies. And sometimes we can't even see them because people are carrying them like this, and they're nestled down in here. They might be three days old. They might be two weeks old, four or five pounds. One that I saw... A couple of weeks ago, I just I heard they're now seven pounds, but we see them throughout the room here. There was another one <coughs> born just. Can I say this? Maybe a half hour ago, Caleb to Shane and Megan. Talk about a definition of special, of holy. Would we ever consider taking a little being like that and for a few months or a bit of time leaving them in a pigsty? Would we ever want to let, allow, our older children to go wandering off, to experience the world? Absolutely not. We were made special, we were made holy, and God intends for us to be holy. If we are going to pursue holiness, 
Here's what we must do. We must start to gaze upon the holiness of God. We must live and obey the commandments of Jesus Christ. Remember, we will become or we will move towards that which we gaze upon. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run to that which we want to become. Here's the the key line. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Whether it's plan B or plan A that we need, both plans are perfect. They're gifts from God, and they're joyous. You remember Joseph after his brothers sold him and he was in prison and then he became, he was put in charge of the country and the food and his brothers came not knowing they were going to run face to face with their brother. And of course when they discovered they all felt horrible. Genesis 50 Verse 20, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to do harm, but God intended it for good and to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. How can we ever explain what we're in or, ex- or experiment, experiencing? But we can know for certain that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're going to move towards Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for this message that my brothers and I had the privilege of bringing. Thank you for this body of Christ here. Lord, at some time or other, we're all hurting. We've wandered in some way. We find ourselves in a dark corner or in a faraway land. Lord, draw our eyes back to you. And may we run to you. And for that great privilege, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.